Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On December 12, 1787, the state of Pennsylvania officially joined a new team. If this team had a uniform, it would don the proud colors of good old red, white, and blue. There might be some stripes on the jersey and maybe some stars on the helmet. The logo might be an eagle soaring above the competition. This team, of course, is the United States of America. As Pennsylvania became the second state to officially join the union. And although the history of football in this state is not as old as its statehood, that's only because the sport didn't exist. Nonetheless, Gridiron High School history is rich for the Keystone State. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the Gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is 1988. We are at Beaver Stadium, home of the Penn State Nittany Lions. We're here to watch the first ever Pennsylvania High School Football State Championship. But instead of sharing the score, or the game, or even the history, I'm going to go ahead and stop right there. because. I am certainly not the right person to tell you about any history of Pennsylvania high school football. Instead, we're going to bring on the PAFB football history dude himself to talk a little bit about the legendary history of the Keystone State's game on the gridiron. But before I get into the interview, I wanted to remind you that this show is part of a larger network of podcasts covering all sorts of sports history. You can find all of our shows over at Sports historynetwork.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in starting your own show about sports history, or maybe even to write an article about sports history, reach out to us over on the contact page. We accept all sorts of sports, as long as, you guessed it, it's historical. Now you might focus on a sport in general, with an angle towards the pros, kind of like this one, or you might even want to focus on a specific team, like when football was football by uh, Joe Ziemba, runner-up in the sports podcast award category for the best team, I don't mind. Or maybe you want to even dedicate your entire podcast to one player that you think got shafted for the Hall of Fame in their respective sport. It's totally up to you. Maybe a hodgepodge. But again, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, that's kind of what we do here at the Sports History Network. We help you start your own show. We help break down that barrier of technology or anything else that might be preventing you from starting that podcast. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com and hit us up on the contact page. And speaking of the Sports Podcast Awards, <clears throat> I'm going to do a little bit of a humble brag for our podcasters and members of the Sports History Network. I want to give out a huge shout out to Joe Ziemba of When Football Was Football and Oz Davis of Truly the Goats. Both were runner-ups in their respective categories. Also, a major super-duper Congratulations to Rick Loeza of Basketball History 101. Rick was crowned the champion of the best basketball podcast in the first ever Sports Podcast Awards. But now that I'm done with my little bit of a humble brag about our members of the network, let's get into the interview about PA Football History. We'll just talk about how, so yeah, I'm at, I'm at the website 
pafbhistory.com and I see the tagline that says Pennsylvania football history, history of the Keystone States game. Let's start there. The origin of pafbhistory.com and maybe the purpose and why you started the website. Uh, I started it back in uh, 2011, I want to say. I was in grad school. I was going to grad school out of state. You know, whenever you're in grad school, there's lots of things you have to do. You know, you're busy all the time. But then in the the rare moments that you have to yourself, you want to do something that you find enjoyable. I I decided to start not with a statewide site. Um, I started with a site dedicated to the history of my alma mater. I have an undergraduate degree in history, so it's always been something I've been passionate about. Um, So I started digging through that, finding things, you know, and and you find inconsistencies. You find things that you've heard all your life happened that you find out, you know, oh, that never actually did happen or it didn't happen anywhere close to how somebody said it did. And so I did that uh, again for my alma mater, just that, just a a simple little free WordPress site. I had a Twitter account for that that I didn't use very often, but it was just kind of a little thing uh, people with community could, could kind of enjoy. Um, then about 2013, I thought, you know, I've kind of maxed out what I can really research um, on one school on my alma mater. I kind of gotten to a point where there wasn't a lot of new, exciting things to find. So I decided to take a really big jump um, and, and just say, well, not just one school, let's do all of them. And, you know, when you do that, I didn't do it in any kind of predetermined way. I didn't do it thinking, okay, here's my six month plan or anything like that. I, I, this is a hobby for me and I'm a hobbyist. And so, Hey, what's interesting right now, let's do it. And if I find something that I think is interesting, odds are someone else in the state or elsewhere might find it interesting too. So let's share it out. And even if that's three or four people, I don't care. You know, I'm finding it anyway because I get enjoyment out of it. And so I think that's why I kind of started going more towards uh, Twitter for the PFH account because I I really want to start. And I tell myself this probably once every four months, I really want to start improving how much content I put on the website. Cause I find a ton of stuff. I just don't always have, you know, everything together to put up for a, uh, like a, a proper blog post, but I find a lot of stuff and it's easier just to find those bits and pieces and tweet them out. Um, but I do want to start really increasing the amount of content on the website. So Twitter kind of became the primary uh, medium, I guess that I've been using just cause find a little clip on newspapers.com you just, you know, clip it out. You can tweet it, tags, tag some teams, people who you think might be interested in it. And you just kind of go from there and hopefully start some discussions. And, um, you know, you find out from people like, Oh, actually that didn't happen that way. And then I learn a little bit about it and it's just been really cool. I've always been kind of a, a guy who wants to find out everything about something I'm interested in. I don't like, you know, only finding, the the back of the baseball card kind of ideas. I like I like knowing everything. I'm kind of kind of psycho in that way, I guess. But so that's worked well. And then I I so I run the Twitter account. I had started uh, the website maybe 2015, something like that. Hadn't posted much on it. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to start making some longer form stuff. And if I really want to put a story together, um, then I would do it on the website. So that's kind of how I've been running it. And then the little odds and ends you know, interesting fact things I've been doing through the Twitter account. And then on both, we've done a couple summers ago, ran a best nickname in the state kind of tournament just for fun. When COVID happened in the spring of 2020, um, had the idea like, hey, let's just, this has nothing to do with history. But again, it's my site and I thought it was interesting. So we're going to do it. Um, Let's try to find out who has the best helmet in the state. And happened to be that other like other people had seen that we were starting that. So other states started doing it and it became a thing that, I don't know, maybe 20 some states did. And it's cool now because I became really close with, you know, a group of half a dozen other guys from other states and, and we still talk all the time now. So it was a really dumb thing that we just did for fun in the depths of COVID when we didn't have anything to do. And now, you know, I have some, some guys that I talk to every day now. Um, so other guys from other states. So, you know, it's a weird, long, twisted journey you take and, and you never know what's going to happen. And But again, it's a hobby for me. So whatever happens, happens and I'm good with it. Yeah, I, I don't remember what the name of the website is now, but there was a site I found that they have a lot of 
there was high schools across the nation. Like you could get their helmets and their logos and things like that. And my little tiny town that I went to school from in Michigan was actually on there. I was surprised. I don't know how they earn or get like the, if there's copyrights or I don't know how any of that stuff works, but have you seen the site before too, or one of these sites? I've seen sites like that. Yeah. And then actually the guys that I'm talking to, um, the one guy, even before I had met him, he, he makes miniature helmets. His name's you can find him on Twitter. It's hubby's helmets. Um, his wife always said that, you know, my hubby will make you the, the helmet. So he started calling it hubby's helmets. He's in, he's in Kansas, does a tremendous job. Um, and then a guy in Missouri also is starting to do that too. So, you know, th- there's a lot of sites out there and I know those guys are really diligent about making sure they have the permission of the school and that kind of thing. You know, I can't speak for everyone else, but I know they do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's with any, I guess, company or business, you, you can only know the ones that you do know. And are, so you mentioned that you've kind of gotten in touch with a lot of other states and everything like that from the various projects. Do, do they all have websites similar to what you're trying to run to, or is it just through maybe social media and such? I don't know. So what they do, those guys don't all necessarily have their own content, um, you know, sites or, or whatever. Um, some of them are just guys who were coaches who wanted to do it just because they weren't able to coach during that time. And yeah, in terms of uh, statewide history sites, I know of a few. I know Wisconsin has a decent one. You know, I don't know anything about Wisconsin, but I've gotten on it and they, they do good work on it. So I've read it and, and I know Virginia has one. Georgia and Alabama both have really extensive ones, like with big communities that are pretty cool. Um, so I get on those. Texas obviously has one because Texas has the biggest of everything in football, you know. So, yeah, there, there's a few um, that I have found. And, and there's other you can find ones for individual programs and things like that, too, all over the place. Um, but, yeah, th- those guys that I'm talking about, they don't focus on history. Oh, they're they're also like maybe like the current games that are going on, the current seasons, not necessarily looking at it from a historical perspective. Yeah. And then, and then, like I said, a lot of them are just coaches who, you know, whenever they saw the helmet thing, they decided, cause they're all current helmets, you know, it's all current stuff. And so it's not really history based. That's just, again, it's, it's something where, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I just felt, feel like this site is something that I can just do whatever I want. And so there's nobody, there's no history police who are going to come and say, well, this helmet thing or this nickname thing that doesn't have anything to do with history. So don't do it. I can kind of do what I want and have a creative outlet that way. So that's why I did it. But strictly from a history standpoint, I don't, I don't regularly interact with a lot of guys from out of state who do that. There are a couple of guys within Pennsylvania that I do interact with a lot um, who do more regional or just their, their town, like kind of how I started a decade ago. But on a statewide level, I'm not familiar with, I don't have a lot of connections outside the state. Yeah, that's that's something that one of the reasons or my I should say visions for what the Sports History Network was going to ultimately be was not just a bunch of shows that kind of like mine. I don't I have a niche to the point where I'm talking football history and it was primarily NFL at the beginning, but it kind of is any any inner inner related football history. But it was a. A thought and a hope that down the road we have a podcast for like teams specific within even down drilling it down to the high school level where maybe it's not just a, a team of like all football history. So let's just use whatever like the I, I when I was in DFW, there was the the, the Liberty. They, that was where uh, what the heck's his name? Jay Ajayi. He came from there and there's some other good good places too. at any rate. So like they had not just football, but all of the Liberty different sports and stuff, but it was Liberty high school history. That kind of thing would be kind of neat for the sports history network down the road. And speaking of that down there, you mentioned there, everything's bigger. Oh my gosh. Their stadiums at some hole. Oh, they were massive. Yeah. I, I, for a hot minute lived down there um, after I graduated college and uh, it was an eye opener. Like we, we take stuff seriously here, but that's not, that's not anything different. Like every, everywhere in America takes things seriously. You know, you could go, go to somewhere in, I mean, not putting them down. You could go somewhere in like Northern Vermont and they take high school football really seriously because in America, that's, you know, a universal thing pretty much. Um, but down there, you always hear that. And then you go there and you see the stadiums that look like, you know, they look like minor league baseball stadiums, but inside they see you know, 15, 20,000 people. And it's, it's, it's a totally different thing to see it in person. So it's, it's wild. We have some decent sized places up here, but, uh, 
it's, it's a different ball game down there for sure. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's all year round too. Like they're always like having summer ball and spring ball and stuff like that. And you alluded a little bit. So you've been working with some people here, you know, for the, for the helmet thing. If some, have you ever had other contributors or, or that would write maybe an article, or your website for PAFBhistory.com or no? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, there's a guy named Shane Schaefer. Um, Shane lives in a town called, well, he doesn't anymore, but he's from a town called Minersville. Minersville, perhaps unsurprisingly, is in the part of the state called the coal region. Um, and the coal region has a really, really rich uh, football history to it. It's, uh, you know, you had a lot of these really, you know, it feels stereotypical talking about this, but when you're talking about Pennsylvania high school football, and you talk about Pittsburgh, it's like all oh, these old mill towns. And the coal region is like that for the eastern half of the state where it was all hard coal anthracite out there. You know, for, for general history people, if they're familiar with the Molly Maguires and that kind of thing back in the 1800s, there was a lot of labor strife and whatnot, really high uh, Eastern European immigrant populations into the coal region. And then a lot of these guys, you know, had kids who ended up being really good high school football players. And they're guys who in the 20s would work in a mine from 12 to 15 years old. And then in high school, they play football. And so there's a lot of really cool history there. And Shane writes a lot of that stuff. Shane is, he's actually a professional historian. He's not an amateur like me, but he, he writes a lot of really cool stuff about the coal region, Minersville in particular, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of towns there that people in Pennsylvania have heard of just because they're, they're old, you know, historic coal region towns, you know, talking about Mount Carmel and Shemokin and Tamaqua and Pottsville, you know, Minersville is one of them, you know, lots and lots of areas in that town. And it's, it's, you know, it's stereotypical and it's cliche, but it's really blue collar, tough people there still, you know, they're, they're it produced really good football for a long time. and still does, um, you know, arguably the greatest uh, current dynasty in the state, Southern Columbia is on the Northern fringe of it. I wouldn't call it the coal region, but it's, it's not far away um, pretty much over a mountain ridge or two from it. And so in Mount Carmel is still excellent. Mount Carmel is the winningest school in the state um, all time. Um, and they're in the top, I forget where it is now that it's been updated, but they're in the top five, top eight nationally. And it's just, it's just what they do out there. And so Shane does a lot of really good stuff. He's found stories of, you know, guys who played in the thirties who only had one arm and, and he find he's really good at finding unique stuff and, and it's fun to read. So he wrote an article for the, the site maybe a year ago about how his high school and Shemokin high school. Minersville and Shemokin had a series where they didn't play for about a decade because every time they played, it turned into a, uh, not only a bench clearing brawl, but a bleacher clearing brawl. Um, so got, they got, it, it was colorful. We'll say that. So he's good at finding that kind of stuff and, and he does an awesome job. So his, his, uh, his account, you know, I would, I would say is one of the most valuable ones in the state from a historical perspective when we're talking about football, because he finds, he finds really cool stuff like that. You have to send that over so we can include that in the show notes and everything too. And speaking of on the network and someone, so Pigskin Dispatch, Darren Hayes, he's one of our biggest contributors. I don't know if, okay, you're shaking your head like you already know what I'm talking about or. Yeah, I'm familiar with him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. Cause he's, he's also a high school referee in Pennsylvania up in Erie. I don't know if he still is actually at the moment, but yeah, he, he'd be someone that would probably bring you in this show if you haven't already done so. No, I haven't been on there. Uh, he and I haven't interacted much. Um, I know we've interacted back and forth whenever, you know, topics come up to eerie history. You know, I think he was just, uh, we were just tweeting a little bit maybe yesterday together. Um, I don't know him personally, but I'm, I'd be happy to be on that. I mean, I just, I like talking ball, you know, I like talking historical ball. So I'm happy to do it. Yeah. And you guys would have a lot more, uh, you'd be able to relate to things even more so than what I can just, I'm, I'm interested in the stories, which is where we're going to take this uh, little interview next. So we're going to bring out the DeLorean. So that's what I bring here at a physical DeLorean for you to hop into. And we're going to go back in time now. So let's go a few different trips in the, in the history of Pennsylvania football history. And maybe we'll the first, first stop on this trip, let's take us back and tell me about the story of Dr. Roger Saylor. Dr. Saylor uh, is, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's, he's the godfather of all this. Um, he was a professor at Penn State for decades. Uh, I believe he was an economics professor. He would take, uh, at the time, 
uh, physical newspapers from the library at Penn State or microfilm versions of it. Uh, and he would document every score he could find. I don't know how he had enough hours in the day to do what he did. Uh, but he, it's still freely accessible on Penn State's website. If you just search the Sailors, Sailor football spreadsheets or something like that, S-A-Y-L-O-R, you'll find them. Uh, Penn State has them all digitized. They're all digitized in Excel files. Um, they are not in the best format, but they're, they're clear, clearly readable. They're, they're not in the best format for, you know, compiling into larger things, which is what I've tried to do for years, try to put them together. I've recently, recently found an outlet to that or a workaround for that. But Dr. Saylor, he, he put all these scores in. He has games going back to 1885. Now, the 1885 season, he only has two results. He has two results from a school that has closed long, long ago called Shortledge Media Academy, which is in southeastern Pennsylvania. And they played two games against Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Military College. That's no longer a high school. Um, it's now Widener University in the Chester area down way in Southeast Pennsylvania. So he only had two games that year, but then in, in further years, he had really every game known every game that was documented by a newspaper. He had documented in his uh, records. He then would put together team season by season information in separate, sep they're now in separate spreadsheets. He obviously wasn't doing that in the sixties and seventies, but, and then he also did that for virtually every college. Like you can look up, any university, any junior college, uh, again, the amount of time that this must have taken, I have no idea how he had enough, enough hours in the day to do it. And so he, he again, is like the, the, the origin of most of the data that I kind of base what I do on. That's led to some things in the past where people, you know, maybe on Twitter might reply like, oh, well, this school became this part of this school. You have them as separate schools. They should be the same or vice versa. Or, you know, no, we have this result from this school. I publish every year at wins list. So every school in the state, how many wins they currently have at the end of the season, um, all time. And I all, and I'm glad they do it. I always have schools reach out and say, no, we have our record as this. And so it, it, it's hard after this much time to know who's actually right. I always base my stuff off of sailors data because that's where everything is kind of on a level playing field. And I'm always always willing to take a look and adjust as needed because as you can imagine, he missed games, you know, he can't possibly find everything, but in the Penn state collections, there's somewhere around a quarter million games in that um, just massive amount of data. He also did formula. He had a formula and unfortunately he lived to be almost a hundred years old. I believe he, he died about a decade ago. I want to say I might be wrong on that, but he, uh, nobody to my knowledge knows exactly what that formula was. I think it went kind of went to the grave with him, but he would rank teams and at the, throughout there were parts of the state that would, that would publish his like state top 10 before states were actually ranking or, or new sources were, were ranking um, teams across the state. So there are teams that uh, consider themselves to be the, we didn't start state playoffs until 1988 here. Um, but there were there will be teams that say they were the 1974 state champion using his formula. So he did an incredible amount of work. I don't, again, I have no idea how he had the time to do it, but he did. And so what I, I have a post on the site where I went back and I tried to find some pre 1885 games. We know that there were games before 1885 because uh, for example, John Heisman is from Titusville, Pennsylvania. And we know that he was in high school before 1885. We know that he played high school football, um, at least whatever high school football might have looked like then. And I'll talk about that here next. But so I wanted to look back and I did find, you know, some some scraps. It's really hard. There were games in the early 1880s. You think football is such a new thing that that wasn't always deemed newsworthy at the time that, that two high schools played each other. So you might and, and the details were really slim. You might find that this town name played another town name. Well, okay. Were those the high schools playing each other? Were they, were they guys who worked in a factory playing guys from that town's factory? Were they, were they adults playing adults? Were they in the biggest thing that I've found during this whole site? One of the biggest aha moments for me was, well, you know, football prior to the 1920s, when we're talking about high school football, it doesn't mean that everybody on the field there was a high school student. 
You know, there were a lot of times when you would have guys who are 20, 22 years old who weren't enrolled in the school, who were playing on the team along with high school players, and they were playing against a team that was made up the same as they were. So, you know, the the concept of high school football prior to the World War One era was really, really nebulous. It was shaky because it wasn't it wasn't 15 to 18 year old kids who were regularly attending school playing against each other it was often there were a lot it was a lot shadier than that um and it wasn't against the rules at that time um it's just very different than what we have today so anyway i tried to find some games prior to sailor's first year 1885 uh found evidence of a few again that's on the site but i found evidence of a few going back to maybe 1882 1883 but you know at that point we're talking about when college football was was in, not even in its infant stage yet. So it, it's way, way, way back there. Yeah. So do you know why did he go about this project? Did he put write it out in an article anywhere? I don't know if I've ever seen he did write he did write some books. So I talked about Shane Schaefer earlier. Um Shane Schaefer actually got a copy of a book that Sailor wrote. Um but a lot of his books, he would he would have a little bit of an intro, but then it was a lot of data. So it wasn't it wasn't they're not like full narrative books about this is why I did it. This is what I found. Um, he would have a little bit of that. I think he was just a, a diehard football fan. And it's just what he did, um, you know, for fun. And there are uh, again, he lived a very long life. Um, and there are I know a couple people around the state who may have been media members or um, part of county history, historical societies, that kind of thing, who knew him. Um, but uh, I don't know exactly what his motivation was for doing it. I'm very glad he did it because it serves as kind of the bedrock of what I try to do. Um, although I probably try to take a little bit more of a narrative um, approach to it than just a straight data collection sampling. No, that's cool, though. Like you said, he, he created this massive data base for you to be able to use from. And it's even cooler. I think that you're getting feedback from other schools of, Hey, by the way, this went this way. Cause that means a, they care and B they're paying attention kind of thing. So that's neat. Yeah. They have, they have somebody putting in the time to, to have their own data. And a lot of those inconsistencies come from two places. Sailor just missed some games here and there, which is completely understandable. When you have a quarter million of them, you're going to miss a few. Um, or he sometimes would not uh, deem a game to be official. So uh, there are games when, you know, a certain high school would play like rail- railroad workers or something um, or a YMCA or things like that. And he, he wouldn't count that. Now, he's, there are some inconsistencies in his records with that. Sometimes he does list those games and sometimes he doesn't. So when high schools contact me, I love that, you know. It's well, that's another project to do. That's another fact check to do. And I have a couple in the hopper right now. So yeah, yeah. Bishop McDevitt sent me something oh, six, eight weeks ago. And I promise that I'm gonna get to it. I just need to need to find the time to get around to it. But I'll have schools, I'll have schools, you know, and it usually comes when I publish that wins list. And that always creates discussion, which is, you know, it's kind of the point. Right. It's, it's for us to talk about things and remember it and, and double check things. And so I, I, I'm happy to have all of that. Um, and so around that time, whenever I pu- publish that, you know, usually like January or so, I'll, I'll throw that out there. That's when I'll get schools saying, you know, you never hear from the schools that you have too many wins for. But it's always the schools that say, well, you know, you shortchange us five or six wins. Here it is. And you know, they, they are usually really, really good at supplying documentation. And it's like, cool. You know, that that's legit. I'll take it. You know, I'm not trying to shoot anything down. I just, you know, it's important to me that this stuff is, is based in, in records. Um, and so if we have evidence of it, I'm, I'm more than happy to change it. Did that last off season, um, had a lot of discussions with, uh, Easton high school and Easton is also in the top, I think 10, uh, winning his programs nationally. And they had found, uh, they had had a guy, just a fan of the program, do a lot of research on all their games and he found it. And their AD sent me like two or three Excel spreadsheets with everything in there. I mean, it's like, 
yeah, this is golden. This is, this is totally legit. I updated it in my numbers and then, you know, we're good. It, it, it didn't make a dramatic change. I can't remember how many wins it was. Easton has, I think 850 now, something like that. So it, it was some, but I love when schools do that because it's my goal to be right. Yeah. And I mean, when you're talking way back in the, we'll even call it pre 1950s, whatever era you want to give to it, it's so hard to get a lot of that accurate information. There's so many different games. When you're talking before 1920s, that's, that's near impossible. We have it's, it's football prehistory, essentially. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have guys on the network that that's what, so when football was football, that's what it, it's all about the Chicago Cardinals and, and well, Arizona Cardinals and the Chicago Bears, like their history. And he's finding like this upcoming book that he has. There's a few different things that he's going to bring forth that he's pretty sure have never been found out because he had interlink like stuff together. And like, there's going to be not groundbreaking things by any means, but it's going to be stuff that you just never knew until you're able to gather more information. And it's, it's groundbreaking within what we do, you mm-hmm. know, and that's, that's always the, the excitement you get from finding something like this. And, you know, I understand that, you know, that I don't ever, you know, tell my wife this stuff. She wouldn't care, but it's like, Hey, I found out this thing. And, and it's really exciting to you. Cause this is, you know, this is what we nerd out on. And, <laughs> you know, you find stuff about, you know, like you find contradictions and, and then there's a puzzle to solve. So you might see that, and again, going back to Shane, should have just had him on here. I'm talking about him a lot, but uh, he he's found in Minersville's history times when they've played different schools listed in the, around the same date. Well, did they play a Saturday game and then a Monday game, or was that did they send their JV team to play a smaller school? So you have all these puzzles to figure out that you don't even anticipate running into, and that just keeps it going. That just that just keeps things fresh and exciting uh, for people who have the the weird sickness that we have yeah i mean that that goes for anything I and mean, you said i should have had shane on here it almost sounds like you and shane just need to start your own podcast on the sports history network but that's for another day maybe we have kicked it around we have kicked it around i will tell you that <laughs> well uh here here's that little in in uh in in show advertisements for the sports history network if you're ever interested kind of reach out to us anybody else that's out there listening you want to start your own show covering any sport history that you're interested in, any niche, it doesn't matter how small, just reach out to us on the sportshistorynetwork.com and we'll help you out. So let's go back to 1988 and then pre. You mentioned that that was when they first started official playoffs in the in the state. So let's talk about just maybe the genesis of that, maybe a little bit of state championship and playoff history. Yeah, there's, there's a few kind of avenues to walk down here when we talk about this because First of all, we started a statewide playoff in Pennsylvania much later than a lot of other states did. We didn't start until 1988. And even then, it really it, it involved most of the teams in the state, but it wasn't truly statewide. The schools in Philadelphia, so the public schools in the city of Philadelphia, and then also the Philadelphia Catholic League, uh, they didn't join until about 2007. So we have not, it, it's only been really about 15 years that Pennsylvania's had an entire 100% of the state um, state championship. But 1988, you had 90% of the schools, 93% of the schools probably involved. Um, but those first couple of years they did. Um, and I think, so we talked about Sailor had a formula. It wasn't called Sailor's formula. Um, it was called the Gardner's point, Gardner point system. And the district around Pittsburgh, the Whippeal, Whippeal still uses this as a tiebreaker. That, I think, was the genesis of a point system, and someone who knows more could correct me on that. But what they did was they basically, for each of the four classifications that the state had at that time, we now have six, they would take basically the team in the northwest of the state with the most points, southwest, northeast, southeast, and the east and west would play a semifinal, and then they would play a state championship game. And the first year, 1988, the state championship games were at Beaver Stadium at Penn State. There's some really cool footage you can find of the 1988 4A state title game on YouTube where Bruce Arians is the color guy for that game. Um, so it's pretty cool, but he's from York. But uh, so it had been a long time coming. There, there have been people across the state arguing um, that we should have it. There were different forces that didn't really want it. That they weren't sure. Pennsylvania operates uh, in some ways like 12. We have 12 districts across the state. And they're kind of 12 fiefdoms and 
there were a lot of people who didn't want to give up their control, give up the kind of regional power they had, I think. Um, so that's why it took so long. There had been games in the 20s, uh, 30s, and early 40s that were called state championship games, but they really didn't cover most of the state. It was basically uh, the state if you excluded almost every major city. So it was a state if you eliminated Erie and Pittsburgh in the West, if you eliminated the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre area, the Lehigh Valley, Philly, and Harrisburg. So everywhere else was part of this. Um, basically, if you look at the map um, of the state and see where all the green is, that's what they decided. So they would split that into East and West. And there were games for a period of 18 to 20 years there. They weren't really state title games, um, but they were called that way. So by the time we got into the 70s, there were some and, and there were years where they were they managed to piece uh, games together that they called state championship games, but they weren't decided through a playoff bracket. Um, 1973, Pittsburgh Central Catholic uh, was number two in the state. They were undefeated. They came up and they played State College, who was number one in the state and undefeated. And State College won that game, was determined the state champions that way. But, you know, there were games like that that you would have one-off kind of things, but you really didn't have a formal comprehensive state playoff until 1988. And you really didn't have a, a full bracketed state playoff until the early to mid nineties. So, you know, it took a long time. There was a lot of, I don't know, fighting on both sides as there always is when you make a major change like this, but 1987 was a year. So the last year without a state title game, obviously things have been put into place. Um, 1988 was going to happen. There was going to be a state playoff that year, but 1987, I would argue was a year that that was kind of decided, Hey, this is the way we need to go in the West uh, North Hills on the North side of Pittsburgh. North Hills was USA today's wire to wire. Number one national champion that year. They went 13 and zero. Uh, I think they had 11 shutouts in 13 games. The first team defense did not allow a point. They're in the state's biggest class. They were, when you think of the Pittsburgh area, um, there have been a lot of really good programs there. And the 1987 North Hills team is is really close to the top of that mountain, if not at the top of it. That was maybe the best team to come out of Pittsburgh in the modern era, at least. Coached by Jack McCurry, who coached them until somewhat recently. Um, and then in the East, you had Central Bucks West. And Central Bucks West is a school that, you know, people outside of the state may have heard of from the uh, the 1990s. They had an incredible run. Mike Pettin Sr., whose son, Mike Pettin Jr., has been an NFL coach for a long time. Um, CB West was an absolute machine in the 90s, and they were very good in the 80s as well. At the end of 1987, they were up to 43 straight wins. They had been dominating the suburban Philadelphia area, um, again, at the state's biggest class. And there wasn't a way for those two teams to play. And they both, uh, under Sailor's rating system, tied with the exact same number of points in his formula, his, his you know, behind-the-curtain formula. We don't know exactly how it's deduced, but they both had 543 points. There was no way for them to settle it on the field then. And again, the, the, the 1988 was going to happen. It had been decided, it, it had, you know, but it was a year too late for, for a game that I would argue would be, you know, to, still to this day, 35 years later would have been a probably a Mount Rushmore kind of football game in the state. Um, just an incredible showdown um, between two just tremendous teams. North Hills had seven guys go division one central bucks West always sent, sent guys to the collegiate level, like in droves. Um, but we never got to see it happen. And so that's kind of historically, if I look back, something I regret, I, w I wish that would have happened because that could have been a, a really uh, important milestone in the history of the game in our state. So what you're saying is when you just steal the keys to my DeLorean, you're heading back there and you're going to make sure that that happens. I'm going to 1987 and I, I don't know if I, if I got to pick a site, you know, they were good with it being a Beaver stadium in 88. So I think we could put it at Beaver stadium. That's, that's relatively equidistant geographically. It, it makes the most sense. So yeah, I'll watch North Hills and uh, CB West at, at Beaver Stadium, and we'll get Bruce Arians back. He'll do the color again. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah speaking, of, I, I like the way that he that would be cool to have him there. Um, you mentioned Beaver Stadium, and so here we have Ford's Field. You know, that's where the the teams play down in Dallas. When I was there, it was Jerry's World, the AT and T Stadium. Uh, do do they play now in say Lincoln over in Heinz at all? As far as the the state championships. 
they don't. And that has changed um, just in the last month or so. You know, the state championship game has been held at different places uh, since 1988. As I said, in the early years, they they played, uh, and not even all of them. I'm kind of misspeaking. It wasn't all the games where Beaver Stadium in 88. It was the, the 4A, the big class game was there. But then their, the first couple of years, they were scattered kind of about uh, the state, it, it, you know, mid-sized kind of stadiums for the most part. Early 90s, uh, for most of the 90s, they were in Altoona just at Altoona Stadium, which is one of the bigger stadiums in the state. It's relatively midpoint in the state. It's a little bit more of a Western. It's still, you know, kind of midpoint. Even today in state semifinals, a lot of games are held there. Whenever two teams, like a team from maybe Harrisburg and Pittsburgh play, it's kind of a midpoint. Um, And then they went to Hershey, I'll say late 90s. I can't remember the exact year off the top of my head. And they played in Hershey uh, through this past fall. Um, and the PIAA, the state organization, athletic organization, just changed, and they will no longer be in Hershey. I will say to the dismay of many, it will be moved to a high school stadium. Now, it'll be at Cumberland Valley High School, and nothing against it's a tremendous high school. It's a very big high school, uh, a, a school with a lot of sports history, really, really good football program um, for decades. So it's nothing against them. It's just, I think that there are a lot of people in the state that it, it, it has nothing to do with Cumberland Valley. It, it, there's a lot of people in the state that I think still feel like, you know, everyone's proud of their own state um, and their own state's high school football. But I think there are a lot of people that kind of have the opinion that, you know, in, in a perfect world, a state like Pennsylvania with high school football, we wouldn't be playing at a 10,000 seat high school stadium. Um, but again, we're a state that has two major metropolitan areas and they balance both sides of the state and they're they're two you know when you're talking about pittsburgh and philadelphia you're talking about using a professional stadium you know you gotta have a deal like michigan must have with the lions you know to make it work financially and everything else but you know in my head there's a couple options that i would really get excited about and i'm not sure where it's going right now i'm thrilled about but you know it's it's going to be fine hershey park stadium wasn't great either in my opinion um you know a pastime of every December was seeing tweets from uh, sports writers griping about the accommodations there and how, and there weren't enough lock, there wasn't enough locker room space there and that kind of thing. It was, it's an older stadium. It's not Hershey's a beautiful town, but I don't think it was a real attractive place, you know, necessarily. The only cool thing about it was um, when a team won a state semifinal game, it was tradition for their fans to throw Hershey kisses on the field, which is kind of a cool thing, I guess. But, you know, I, if, if it could be worked out where, you know, you could have half the games one year in Pittsburgh, half the year in Philly and alternate them every year, you know, odd classes one year, even classes another year. But then that would require the state to, to pay the Eagles and the Steelers. And they wouldn't have the money to do that. I'm sure. And Penn state under Joe Paterno never showed any inkling and in being uh, interested in doing hosting the games at Beaver stadium. James Franklin has made, comments that he'd be open to that state college and Cumberland Valley actually played a game at Beaver stadium a few years ago. But again, they, they put a bid in um, and by reports, the bid Penn state put in was like tenfold what Cumberland Valley did. Like it was magnet orders of magnitude more expensive. So there's a financial component to it. Like there's to anything else that's going to eliminate your dream scenarios. So Cumberland Valley against great district, great school, great football program, great head coach. I think just the fact that our state championship games are going to be moved to a high school stadium, it doesn't really get a lot of people really excited. Yeah, I don't have any skin in that game or horse in the race, but uh, I, I, I don't. I would prefer that it wasn't at a high school as well. I mean, the thought of being able to play, whether it's at the like here in Michigan, the big house, or if it was Ford's Field as a high schooler, it's like that different type of thing versus playing at just another high school stadium again. And I mean, that's an argument I guess we could say for another day. This is more historical. Um, Let's play a little game. So it's going to be kind of like a mix between a DeLorean ride and you alluded to earlier, the Mount Rushmore. So you get to take the DeLorean and you get to pick four great dynasties in state history and maybe give me a little micro history of each one of them, however way you prefer. Uh, first thing I would do is try to uh, extend my, my <laughs> DeLorean uh, indefinitely so that I could uh, go to more. 
you know, there's, there's a lot of them. If you go back through, um, I've written on the site about Harrisburg tech, which is a school that hasn't existed in almost a hundred, hundred years now. And I think, you know, we're not even talking about the same sport in a lot of ways, but if you're going to make a list of the most dominant teams in the history of the state, they're on it, at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, they had a two-year span, uh, 1918 and 1919, where they've been retroactively, and you can put whatever stock in this you want, but retroactively named mythical national champions back-to-back years. In those two years, they outscored their opponents 14-25 to 10. They scored over 700 points both years. The one year they outscored in 1919, they outscored their opponents 701 to zero. Um, they, and it wasn't, it wasn't like they were beating up on anybody. I mean, if you, if you, if you know Pennsylvania football and you see the teams they're beating, they're really good programs. They're still today really good programs, but they also played teams from six different states. They played Maslin, uh, Ohio. Um, and, and when you're talking about the greatest high school programs in America, Maslin's on that list. I don't care how long the list is. It's on that list. And Maslin hasn't lost a game, hadn't lost a game in two years. And Harrisburg Tech beat him 26, nothing. Harris Maslin the week before the game story I found about that was from, I think the Maslin paper and they, they like couldn't believe it. Maslin had won the week before 82, nothing. And then Harrisburg Tech beat him. Um, you know, they played teams from Maine. Iowa, they, they beat the JV teams of Bucknell, uh, Bloomsburg, and Lehigh over that time. Because, again, this was a time when high school teams would play college freshman teams or college JV teams or even small college teams. And they were just an absolute force. Like, nobody really got close to them in 1918-1919 in season. It, you know, it, it was it was a school that, that and, and the article I wrote on the website about them, you know, they – it, it, it's a fascinating story because a, they were exceptionally dominant B they created like the first cross state rivalry with another school. They, they played Greensburg every year in Greensburg, even today, Greensburg to Harrisburg's every bit of a two hour drive, probably much more than that. It might be three hours. You know, we're talking a hundred years ago, taking a train to the game. Probably they played them every year and Greensburg was a Western Pennsylvania power at the time. And it was pretty even. And then Harrisburg tech started, you know, kind of decimating them. You know, they beat them 39, nothing in 1919, four years later, beat them 69, nothing like they, they kind of took that mantle. But what that did was that took the game from being so compartmentalized in different pockets of the state. And you had two powers from the state playing each other regularly. So you get to kind of look back. That's, those are the first years where you can look back and use the transitive property to see team A beat team B team B beat team C and then there, now there's a link to the Western half of the state and you can kind of start piecing things together. And the third reason they're a fascinating dynasty is I'm spending a lot of time on them because they fascinate me. So I'll go through the rest of them a little quicker. But the third reason was they peaked to this like unimaginable height. And within a few years, the school was not, not in existence anymore. So Harrisburg Tech was a technical school. And because it was a technical school, it was technically a non-boundary school. And whenever you bring up boundary, non-boundary in any other state, you're going to get into a, a controversy. And what was cool finding this was we're, we're, you know, people across Pennsylvania are bickering right now, especially because the basketball championships were two weeks ago and Philly absolutely leveled everybody. Um, so people are arguing about charter schools and private schools from the Philly area versus public schools. Well, Harrisburg Tech was at school 100 years ago because they were taking everybody from the Harrisburg area because it was a technical school. It was, it was what we would probably call today a magnet school. And they were using players who several years before in the, in the mid 19 teens, they basically openly admitted that they had used guys who had played professional football before they made their own eligibility requirements. This is in the first decade of the PIAA existing. So there wasn't a lot of power from a state level to really wrangle any of this stuff. And so they were kind of disliked by other people, uh, other teams. They, they were using pros at different points. They were using guys who were 20 years old. They were using guys who maybe went to school, maybe didn't go to school at all, maybe failed. I don't know. So they, they kind of started, they were dealing with a lot of the issues we talk about today, a hundred years ago. So they'd be the first one. They'd be the furthest back one I'd go to. Braddock in the 1950s, another school that's closed now. Braddock's now part of Woodland Hills. Um, 
which is a program that seems to put guys in the NFL every year. But Braddock went from 1954, 1959. Um, they went 55-0-1 over that period. Um, there's a book that was written about them called Striking Gridiron um, because the 1959 season, uh, U.S. Steel went on a massive strike. So basically every kid on that team, their dad was striking. And there were people going hungry. Like the, the strike had lasted long enough, um, but the team kept winning. So it's, it's a really good book. I'd recommend it. Um, and there were reports a year or two ago that they were going to make a movie about that team too, but I don't know um, where that's. Yeah. I've heard of this too for some, I, one of the previous interviews, I think it was. Yeah. Somebody's, I, I don't know if that's still going to happen or not. I haven't looked back, but that, that would be a good one. And then for me, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a real old guy, but I'd probably go back to some of the, some of the rivalries that I didn't appreciate enough when I was a kid or, or not the rivalries, the dynasties when I was a kid, a Berwick in the eighties and nineties um, under George Curry, who until very recently was the winningest coach in state history, you know, with Ron Palace, who Ron Palace, unfortunately is remembered now as the guy that Bino Cook said would win three Heismans. But Ron Palace is for my money, one of the five best high school football players in the history of Pennsylvania. And I don't, you know, my opinion doesn't mean anything, but I've studied this stuff as a hobbyist for years. And Ron Palace was incredible. He went to Notre Dame. He was a four-year starter at Notre Dame. And he's viewed as, I, I think, by Notre Dame fans as a bit of a disappointment. And I think that tells you how good he was. Um, I don't choose to think of him as a disappointment. I choose to say, like, think about how good he was that that wasn't good enough. So I definitely go back and look at those teams. Central Bucks West teams, the 80s and 90s. Aliquip is a school that is easy to root for, you know, and you can pick a bunch of different areas for them. I don't know if they're easy to root for, for people around their area. I don't know because they beat up on them pretty good, but I, I think they're easy to root for. Um, you can go back to the fifties and watch Mike Dicka play for them. You go to the eighties and see Sean Gilbert play for them. You can see the nineties, see Ty Law play for them. Early two thousand, see Darrell Reeves as a high school player who had one of the best high school champ- state championship game performances ever in 2003. You know, in this year, uh, they've been forced up through the success factor the state uses. They're one of the smallest schools in Western Pennsylvania. And this coming year, they have to play 5A. They just won a 4A state title when they're a single A enrollment. So just following kind of their, not, I'm kind of cheating with them, but following their program arc, um, just the names that have come out of there, you know, the success they've had. Again, it's the stereotypical dying steel mill town, very blue collar. Uh, but they just win. They just win and they have, you know, they're playing 4A, 4A programs. Now they'll be playing 5A programs that have literally five times their enrollment, um, if not more. And so, but they just keep finding ways to win. That'd be, that'd be probably my, my short list. But, you know, I, like I said, I'd steal the DeLorean and Doc would have to come find me probably. So. <laughs> well, like you said, yeah, as long as you get Mr. Fusion and then you can get it all fixed right. up so you don't have to, you know, come gotta, back. For... Sure if, if I know how to fix a flux capacitor, then I think I'd be able to run it for a while. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to stick back the, stick back there way back in the 1940s before we come to current times. There's only one player in the pregame interview or whatever you want to call it that you sent me out of all of the uh, players that came out of the state. Why did you send me the name Earl Mundell? Earl Mundell is a guy that a lot of people in the state, including myself, before I found him, they're not going to be familiar with him. He wasn't a guy who had an illustrious post-high school career. He, he went to Penn State. He played at Penn State. He was a nice player at Penn State. He wasn't an All-American. He didn't play professionally. He was 5'4", 147 pounds is what he was listed at, at Penn State, not in high school. So he's, he was, even for the time when you're talking about 200-pound linemen being big, he was a small guy. He was a running back from Ambler, which is now part of Wissahickon in uh, suburban Philly. And it was a fascinating story because of what he did, but also kind of from what he represented. You know, when you're doing sports history, there are times when stuff pops out at you and it's like, why isn't this known? You know, we think everything's pretty cool. You know, I want everybody to know everything I find. But there are times when it's like, how did something like this like go? I don't want to say unearthed. I didn't discover him or anything like that. But there have only been a couple places online that I've seen reference to him. But in 1947, in a 10-game season, he ran for 2,455 yards. So you have a guy averaging 250 yards a game. There's a much more run-heavy time, 
but that also means he was facing nine, 10 man boxes and he, and he's 145 pounds. And he was doing this against big schools, like schools that still exist, still big schools, 33 touchdowns. And you're talking about a guy who averaged almost 250 yards rushing a game. And I think one of the things that interests me about it is you have a guy who did this incredible stuff and then it kind of gets lost. It, it, it gets kind of lost to history. Like even today, you're talking about some states, kids play 15, 16 games running for 2,400 yards. Like that's still a, you see that kid's name everywhere, you know, even with the benefit of many more games to accumulate that. And, uh, you know, to do it in 10 games back then, muddy fields, you know, who knows what else, you know, just really stuck out to me. Then I started researching him and um, some of the stuff he had to put up with, you know, Earl Mandel was black and he was in suburban Philadelphia and the part of Philadelphia he was in was majority white, you know, Ambler, Ambler, from what I gathered, you know, I don't know Ambler today. What I gathered was a relatively diverse place, but some of their opponents, the, the towns weren't. And so there are a lot of stories and I have it in the article on the website of he, you know, nobody took it easy on him. There are certain teams that, that went, you know, past the line, you know, beat him up, you know, kicking that kind of stuff, intentionally trying to hurt him. And again, little guy still did this, still did this, you know, had this incredible accomplishment. And then it kind of went away, you know, it kind of, you know, again, there are a couple websites that you can find it on, but it's not everywhere. It's, it's not like a, a known thing. He ended up being extremely successful after he graduated from college. He became, uh, he was in education. He became a principal and a superintendent. He lived to be almost 90 years old. So uh, he lived this, this really full life. And so he, he's a guy I wanted to talk about a little bit because, you know, for a few reasons, like we, we don't, we don't know what we don't know. And you don't know what kind of really cool stories are out there that you can just uncover. And you can, and I kind of stumbled upon it, you know, the whole story about him and, Every town has, you know, an Earl Mundell, maybe a guy who didn't go through everything he went through, or maybe a guy who didn't have the stats he had, but a guy who has a story worth telling. And, and I think that's the most rewarding thing about what we have the opportunity to do uh, as, as, you know, amateur sports historians. Yeah. And that's what's cool about your website, too. Like you said, you can put that out there to be a living, breathing document that people can come in and find about not just the Earl Mundell story, but any other stories that are uncovered and will be continuing to be uncovered, um, which is why we bring ourselves into the current date. You know, the DeLorean, sorry, I took it back from you, but we're going <laughs> to, you can come and steal it out of my parking lot whenever you want when I'm not using right. it. So that's cool. But uh, let's talk about before we get on out of here, the, uh, the website again, what it is, and then maybe a quick little, what your current project of the NFL draftees is. Yeah. So the website again, um, is something that I've, uh, I don't want to say neglected, but I've updated far too infrequently. And so the goal moving forward is to in increase the, the content for that. So as we get through the spring and summer, especially into the summer, hoping to really, um, increase that, you know, falls are, falls are very busy for me as somebody involved in the sport. So, you know, fall falls a little bit tough, but, but summers, the rest of the spring, summer, and then continuing it into next off season. Um, you know, just continuing to grow. I have, uh, prior to today, uh, it's not just a, a shameless plug thing, have reached out to, to Shane, um, Shane Schaefer from Minersville about, you know, maybe we could put some together ourselves to talk about these things just to, just to get another, another, uh, way to get the content out in a different format. You know, I don't know how many people would voluntarily listen to me, but I'm, I would volunteer to talk about it. So if, if there's one, one person out there, Maybe my mom will. I don't know. Maybe it'll just be her, but uh, she won't. She won't care about anything. But she'll. She's a mom, so she'll do it. But um, and then you know, currently, I, I think I think one of the things that one of the reasons I'm not able to get as much content put out as I would like to is I have this terrible habit of taking on massive, massive data research intensive projects. And so whenever I write something like Earl Mundell or something about Harrisburg Tech or you know, something else. That's usually a break from the kind of monotonous research I'm trying to do. And so right now, the, the big thing I've taken on is uh, documenting every NFL draftee uh, who played high school football here. And on the surface, I thought that would be really easy. 
you know, I use profootballreference.com all the time. And if you go there, you can easily find players from Pennsylvania, or you can click on specific high schools and it pops stuff out. But if you start looking through and it's nobody's fault there, they're documenting an enormous amount of information. You see that some high schools are, you know, maybe incorrect or they list certain high They name them kind of oddly and it's hard to tell which high school they're talking about. But then what you also find is, and, and this makes more sense if somebody actually does this, but if you go to pro football reference and you click on draft, they'll show you every draft pick from every single year back to 1936. The guys who played in the NFL have little blue links, click on it. You can see their page, all their information, everything. But there's a lot of guys, especially those guys in the 24th round in 1942, who they don't have a link. And so you don't necessarily know anything else about them. So those are the guys that I'm currently going back through and double checking. And so I've been cross-referencing that the, uh, the, Pro Football Archives or Pro Football, let me pull it up. I don't want to mess up their name. I've been using them a lot. Another good, yeah, Pro, Pro Football Archives website, which I've used before. Um, they have a lot of good high school information stuff. But then there are guys that Pro Football Reference doesn't have, Pro Football Archives doesn't have their high school, and then I'm on newspapers.com trying to figure out where this guy came from. And, you know, that's been a lot of fun. It's been slow, but I'm finding like every year, uh, I'm basically doubling the number of guys from Pennsylvania that I had originally found. So I'm, I'm finding a ton of guys. So it's been a lot of fun. It's going to take me a long time to finish that, um, but it's fun. So I like to dig through that and find where guys are from and, and that kind of thing. So that's the current project. And I'm sure eventually I'll need a break from that and I'll pick up something else that's like that requires a Herculean task. And then I feel like I never get that, something done, but um, it's fun. It's what I enjoy to do. So if someone were to want to learn more about your work, where would you send them? Listener of the show. The site, the website is just www.pafbhistory.com. So Pennsylvania football history. And then uh, the Twitter accounts where I'm usually more active, especially now that we're in the off season. Um, and that is at PA underscore FB underscore history. So big, PFH logo on the avatar there and, and you'll know you're, you're in the right place. So um, that's, those are the two, two major outlets. And again, we'll, we'll save some uh, links on the show notes for the listener of the show. And if you were to give them any last words of gridiron knowledge nuggets or any other wisdom before we leave, what would that be? I, you know, I don't have a lot of wisdom to give out. I don't think I need to keep as much as I can for myself, I think, but you know, I don't have a lot of it, but the one thing I would like to do, you know, if you're, if you're a retiree, if you're a kid in college looking for something to do, if you're anybody and you have a little bit of time and you have an interest in, in the sport and you have an interest in the history of your team or the history of any sport from your town, your high school, your region, your state, whatever, start digging in. Start finding what you can. I think I think in a perfect world, you know, we'd be able to find all the stuff at our fingertips. But then once everything becomes readily available, the fun's gone because we don't have to find it anymore. And the, the, the search, the hunt, you know, is the fun a lot of the time. But, you know, and, and if you're a, a coach or an AD or a booster club president, find somebody willing to – they don't have to dive all in, roll up their sleeves, everything else. Find somebody within your community, within your – your, your, your town, your program, who has an interest in at least starting to look into the basics, you know, find somebody who, whenever you have your, your banquet at the end of the year in the back of the program, you know, this senior ran for this many yards, that's third all time. And then you can open it up and say, Oh, that, you know, my friend's grandpa is number one. That's pretty cool. That's what it's about. And so just, you know, and I understand this hundred percent being in that seat, but as you know, coaches today, you're so focused on what comes next. And so you don't have to do it yourself, but find someone in your, in your program, in your community who wants to, and so that you can continue that link to the past. And, you know, it, it shouldn't ever feel like at the end of a season, you know, our program is an empty can and we throw it in the garbage and then we start a new one next year. Like, I think you need to have some sort of link from year to year so that you know where you came from and hopefully take it to even better places in the future. There you go. Use history as a link 
to see where you came from, and then use that as a fuel to take it to improve the future. Maybe a little bit of Mr. Fusion, you know what I mean? Toss the bananas in and such, and I mean, if I ever get that DeLorean back, I think I should do the same thing. But speaking of the past, Pennsylvania football history more specifically, all you gotta do is head over to PAFBhistory.com. You're gonna get a whole lot of content over there, and go ahead and follow them on your socials as well. Before I buckle you in, crank that baby up to 88 miles per hour for another adventure, I gotta ask you, please, 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 I'm begging you on my knees to mash that little follow or subscribe button in your podcast player choice. That way, you get the hottest, freshest off the press episodes well each and every week. And while you're at it, I'd also, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you give me an honest review of the show. Tell me what I could do better. You could do that right through your app, your podcast, just, you know, right there, you know, stop it, look at this, you know, press that button, just give me a review, a little tap on the stars, or you can even reach out on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe with your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.